Hello and welcome to Crappycast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jack Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by Diego Andalus. Hello. Cal Krigbaum. Hello. And Rory Marsh. Hi there. On today's episode, we're discussing the two-year-long-awaited franchise redundant superhero flick, The New Mutants, the long-awaited third installment in the Bill and Ted Face of Music, and finally, Amando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield. Let's start with the ever-elusive Josh Boone's The New Mutants. You're not alone. Not anymore. Do you know what mutants are? Would anyone like to share their first time? Rain? I was 13. I thought it was a dream. I just lost control. Sam? I started panicking. People got hurt. Roberto? My girlfriend had burned her. Ileana? I killed 18 men. One by one. Five young mutants just discovering their abilities while held in a secret facility against their will fight to escape their past sins and save themselves. Kyle, let's start with you this week. Well, I wouldn't say I had high expectations for New Mutants. It's been delayed for three years, infamously. And I just, I wanted at least an average film. I was walking in thinking this is going to be an average by the numbers film. And I don't even think it lived up to that. I think it is a, a really bad product. I don't think the characters are fully fleshed, or they're not fleshed out at all, not even fully. They're not fleshed out. The acting it ranges from good to, to painfully mediocre. It's not scary. It's not enjoyable at all. It's bland. And that's the worst thing about it. It's just kind of boring and bland and goes through the numbers, but doesn't even do that well. It feels like Josh Boone tried to blend like a horror film with a typical Marvel superhero, but instead of like making that blend work, he just kind of shoves it all together one after the other. So it'll go from like the first act, which is kind of like a coming of age or like, you know, her getting used to this facility. And then it kind of shifts to horror. And then it shifts to the normal Marvel, big CGI battle third act. And none of it coheres, none of it gels. It's pretty painful. I I left very angry. I, I left the theater very angry. Uh, I think one of the bright spots for me was Maisie Williams' performance. I thought she was the one actress that was legitimately doing a good job. Her character wasn't given much, but it's something. I thought that the romance, the LGBT romance, was very um, progressive. And I'm I'm glad that it was present in the film, but I thought it was let down because the one actress... Forgetting her name right now, is it Blue Hunt? I thought the romance was really let down because one half of the romance is the main character, Blue Hunt. And I just, I really didn't think she did a good job. I looked at her resume, what she's done previously, and it seems like she's on uh, some CW shows, which pretty much explains the acting abilities. Yeah, that, that's the main thing I can say about the film is it's not a coherent product. 
And that's very clear in the editing as well. It feels like it was severely cut down. I noticed some odd cuts. I noticed some weird ADR. I noticed some odd digital zooms and pans that really took me out of it. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a, a professional product. And the $67 million budget does not show up because the CG and green screen leaves a lot to be desired. I think I, it's, it's a strange one because after a two-year wait, it, it's, a, it's a film that sort of has got everything going, going against it at that point. And to be honest, I'm, I'm sort of slightly less cynical about it than you are, Cal, but I, I come from a very similar place, no doubt. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange one, like I said, because after the two-year wait, it, it does come to absolutely no surprise that this does not live up to any form of expectation whatsoever. But to be honest, it's not... It's, 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 it's a diff difficult one because it's, it's not because the film itself is anything it was ever relatively going to be anything good. It's just that it is that two-year little bit of hype and it just hasn't really, you know, come to anything of, of merit. But to be honest, it, it is a stripped-back, lifeless and, and brain-numbing uh, missed opportunity to, to really change generic direction. I mean, the horror for the most part, for the first hour, I'll say that I was... I was more so on board because of how Boone was constructing these horror conventions. And it was going to be very, it, it was looking like it was going to be very interesting to see where it was going to go. But before long, when it caps in at about the hour mark, you know there's only one way to go, which is a final third act, which is just going to be CGI heavy. And the point where it, it, it came to a realization for me that this was literally numbing was the fact that it was just by the books. Like it was just, it was, it was just taking every check mark it could do, especially with a horror convention. One person got uh, like this little horror moment, then another character did, then another character did. And it was just going through the motions eventually. And I think to be honest, it, 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 don't get me wrong, it's a product of, of, of most definitely expectation that maybe we shouldn't expect anything more. But Josh Boone literally has this audience which pain drive for like 98 minutes. There's no flair here, there's no spirit. And it, it just needs to be mentioned, like that director, and I know um, Diego's probably going to add uh, something after this, uh, so I'm not going to step on your toes about it, but I, I just, uh, I was just left the, the, the auditorium thinking, like, what did Boone actually add to this? After two years of heavy reshoots of what, understandably, 20th century, or what was mentioned 20th century Fox at that time, now it's 20th century studios, what they envisioned for this I'm just not too sure because after the fact of what we see with what Boone does behind the camera, there's just nothing there that stands out whatsoever. So what was that edited? What was edited out? Um, God knows. I know there was rumours about post-credit sequences and stuff like that. And, and then you watch the end of the film. And again, to just sort of reinforce how flat it is, it just ends. Which is a shame because it, this X-Men franchise has always had an interesting element of subverting expectation, um, not only because of the comic book trend of which it, ultimately started with his darker path, but it does take this socially conscious con um, construct and then adds this mutant uh, element into it, you know, the, the, the Holocaust, which is, regardless of opinion, it is slightly controversial in your own, but with uh, racism and um, activists and, and stuff like that. So it's, it's an interesting parable to have here. There is something where it's relevant with how it is to coexist as a teenager, the expectation and weight of that, and and the issues of of um, you know uh, 
there's, there's a, I don't want to try to spoil it, but there's a lot of context here, or sub, subtext, should I say, about what it is to deal with growing up as a child with, with inflictions of, from other people or onto yourself. And I, th- I thought it was probably one of the most compelling notions to behold with it, but the film just does nothing with it. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one, but I mean, I, I'll, where I'll push back is I think Maisie Williams here is horrific. Um, the accent for starters is just so jarring, knowing that um, we, we've seen her in, in Game of Thrones and to, to listen to that, it was just, it didn't gel whatsoever. The, the queer representation is another thing I think that the film has going for it, but I think it's so thrown in and it felt slightly like tokenism where these two characters just meet and fall in love um, with no depth attribute to either of them. I just felt like it, what? It just felt like a circumstance thing rather than an organic, authentic love story. But don't worry though, because when they get to the final act, Maisie Williams will turn into a husky and save everyone. And I just sat there and I just thought like, have we really got to that point now? Like, have we really got to that point where I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to root for um, a superhero where they can turn into a, like a, literally a dog that I can see down the road? Like, really? Like, that just, it was just so uninspired. It was unbelievable. Just to end it, it's, it's, it's just a diluted film beyond any degree. It's boring and it's often painful to watch. But it is a film that had so much expectation going for it. I, I think that a lot of us need to sort of see that line and just and just and just you know cross it in the sand and just like, understand that it's just sort of a miracle that we've got this film out even though it is ultimately incredibly underwhelming yeah i mean going in from all that i had heard like i was going in expecting it i don't really know i was like expecting at least some sort of vision behind it whether it be good or bad but after the film ended i left with a feeling that was like okay It's neither something that's good or bad. Like, it was simply just okay. And for a director who apparently has been fighting for his vision for two years, who he himself said that he got the film that he wanted, like, I came in expecting something, like, that would blow me away, regardless of all the research rumors. But it ended up just being so bland that I just don't understand how this director, Josh Boone, could kind of come in with such an inflated ego and act like if he was doing something to change the genre. I think he even made criticisms of Disney's kind of tokenism with LGBTQ representation in Star Wars. And like, okay, I expected, okay, maybe there's going to be a more fleshed out love story in this film that will actually make it look good. But the thing is, this story, it maybe has a couple scenes or two that just aren't even fleshed out at all, as Jack was saying. Like, how can a man like this be criticizing other films that do just a little bit less than what he does. Like he's acting like if he's so high and mighty coming in with a vision, but turning out a bland film, criticizing others for representation, but putting racist remarks in his films, saying racist remarks in his interviews and just with the films, when it comes to representation, it just, it really doesn't show anything. So I was severely disappointed by both the vision that I was promised, but didn't get. And as his comments of how much this film would showcase representation. And I'd say those two things for me were really what kind of put a little bit or what kind of dampened my enjoyment of the film. I'd still give it a positive review, maybe a six out of 10 or something around there where it's like a passing grade, but I wouldn't say that it's anything special at all. And like, even if you look at the technical aspects of it, the cinematographer is a dude who's worked with David Lynch. He's done Mulholland Drive. He's done Lost Highway. And you'd expect him to maybe bring some sort of visual flair along with Boone. 
Now, I don't know if it's because Boone told them to keep it kind of more toned down or if he just wasn't putting in all his effort in, but it just looks like a bland superhero film. It looks even worse than a Marvel film. It just looks like a Resident Evil film. That's what I would say it looks like. With the color palette, it was just all bland. Like, if there's a word I'd use to describe this film, it's just bland and voiceless. I haven't seen the film myself, but it seems like this is a bit of a sad whimper to end the excellent franchise with, which is especially depressing when you think that alongside maybe Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films and Tim Burton's, Tim Burton's Batman 89 is the one that kicked off the kind of modern superhero craze for, for better or worse. And it's quite depressing, especially when you think about how well a send-off Logan was for these X-Men films. But if it feels like this and Dark Phoenix definitely got caught up in the Fox merger issues. But I was just wondering what you guys thought about that and about studio meddling, but also about if there's going to be any kind of future to this franchise. I mean, I think the, the general consensus is that eventually they'll be absorbed into the MCU, but I've got a feeling that maybe Disney might have different plans for that after the release of these last two X-Men movies. Maybe they'll just put it on ice for a bit. But what do you guys think about that? Look, I don't want to add any spoilers into this, but I'll, I'll, I'll just quickly sort of imply something. I don't know if this is laziness or this is a, an active, conscious decision to what they do, but there is certain scenes here that are taken from a recent X-Men film to imply that there's an overall history. There's comments about certain incidents that have happened in the X-Men law. Um, you can take that from the films, you can take that from the comics. Yeah, I think it's up for interpretation. But visually, there are scenes taken out from another X-Men film that contextually feels slightly appropriate. However, that being said, it just feels, in my opinion, and this is what I'm saying about it, it, it feeling half-arsed or it was meant to be in there. It feels like it's just pulled in there because it's relevant. And I think if anyone knows what I'm talking about regarding sort of this overall... I just, I'm trying not to, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'll, 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 I'll resist from talking about any further, but there are scenes in here that feel that they've been taken from another X-Men film because it's, a, it's an easier decision rather than shooting them yourself, which I think Boone has done and probably the X-Men franchise. That being said, there is an opportunity, no doubt, throughout this film, which the film tries to set up that, that there could be something at the end. The film is constantly, you think you're on edge, constantly end waiting for something to happen. That being said, there's nothing here remotely conscious that it's trying to tie into a mythology or a law, not whatsoever. You can watch this and not watch anything else. But regarding the Fox merger, again, this is what I think I'm slightly more upset about with all this franchise is that there's definitely something here to take from and build upon. Adding horror to this franchise works. It, it does, it, it, it most definitely works. We've, we've got the likes of Brightburn and stuff like that, but this this can be done with a 15 rating and it can be sort of, I mean, it could even done with PG 13. I don't think this had to be a 15. I really don't. I think there's just certain imagery here and certain implication of, like I said about earlier about what it's like to grow up as a child with inflictions upon you or upon oneself. I think that's probably what bumps it up to the 15. But other than that, I think Disney, I think Disney can make this for a PG 13, but again, do Disney want to pick this up and, and start, I don't know, raising something that's not theirs and when they could just start afresh and make something um, on their own rights? The only reason why I don't think they'll take this, and, I, and again, even if this was a masterpiece, they wouldn't take this because they would have to rearrange contracts 
and we've just seen what's happened with the Marvel debacle with the Defenders, Jessica, uh, Jessica Jones and, 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 and Luke Cage, that they're not willing to do that. They're just not. Why, why, why pay them an extra six million dollars of a salary, a contract, when they can just get new fresh faces in, which they're probably going to do with the X-Men franchise. So we can all forget about that. The, the, the Fox merger is a merger in name alone. The X-Men, as we know it now, is dead. And then the next 10 years, we'll probably see something else. But just, I don't want to go all over the place with this because I'm, I'm trying to answer your point. Sorry, Roy. But just talking about, you know, studio interference. I can't really see the difference between this now and this two years ago, aside from a post-credit scene. I don't think there'd be any difference. Again, like Kyle said, it's definitely jarring at times. It's definitely had an edit. But I think it's had an edit to bring it down to 98 minutes. Otherwise, this would be probably an hour 45, an hour 48. I don't think there's much missing. Um, but there's definitely a post-credit stinger, and there's definitely sort of more character depth that's been taken away from it. But regardless, yeah, I just don't think there's enough here that's that's, that's had studio meddling per se. But it is a shame at the end of the day because th- this is an interesting film. It just lacks on every single quality, which is a shame. But I don't think that is due to the Fox merger. I think it was always going to be like this. No, yeah, and even if the Fox merger wasn't happening, I would go as far as to say that they would probably try to reboot the franchise, even if it was just simply Fox handling this, because Logan was a great ending. However, both Dark Phoenix and now New Mutants, they kind of just killed all enthusiasm, because I know there were people maybe after Logan who said, oh, no, we want to keep the same characters, we want to keep the same actors going. But really, after these last two films, I don't see how anyone would have been enthusiastic at all about continuing with the same story. I feel Disney's definitely gonna wanna reboot it later. I mean, I think they're probably gonna try to tackle Fantastic Four first before kind of getting into this. So I maybe even put it to 15 or 20 years until they finally get to start rebooting this. Cause I mean, it's too soon right now. Both films were disappointments. There's no buzz at all for the X-Men. Some voice needs to come in some like even if we're gonna go with a horror route some visionary voice not like josh boone who says he's a visionary but really has nothing to go for so if we get fresh faces who've worked in horror like someone from blumhouse or jordan peele or james wan and we kind of put them in charge of this new mutant section and we reboot it that could work but if there's not a fresh new voice who comes onto these projects i really don't see how this could be done no, I was just going to not to nitpick because I know Rory wants to just interject and we've got to get Cal's opinion. But I just think, and I know, I know this is, I don't think this is a conscious thing of yours. I don't think we can wait 20 years. This is 20 years since we saw the first X-Men film. There's no way they'll wait 20 years with what the, the trajectory is. I think the Fantastic Four will be first because it's, there's such a sour taste. I, I, I can't see them ever sort of doing that. Um, although I, I definitely think if it's good, they're going to be doing it, they'll, they'll do that first and the X-Men will come later. I think with a, I think Reed Richards storyline, they'll, they'll bring it in. But 20 years for, Mar- for Marvel is way too long. It'll be interesting to see, regardless of that, and, and, and the interest of what New Mutants, I think they'll cancel Blurred after this. With, with, with how Josh Boone has made this film and sort of the two-year delay, having a, an R-rated um, or P, uh, 15 having sort of that, oh, it's a horror film in the X-Men franchise, and Kevin Feige will just be at home with his cap on, like he always is, um, you know, counting all of his dollar bills, burning them with his cigar, and just thinking, what's the point of making Blade? Because I just think there's too much of a risk there. So well, have, they announced, have they announced a director for Blade? No, but Mashallah Ali's got to do it, and I think 
putting a, an actor like that, I don't think Marvel will drop it. Not like uh, you know Spawn with Todd Fletcher and and um, you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't remember his name now. Um, we were speaking about him on the last podcast. Uh, the guy who plays Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner. You know? Yeah, Jeremy Renner, and then you've got Jamie Fox. I, I don't think Marvel will do that. Um, so it's just interesting to see where this goes. Not to jump back in, because I know Kyle, you'll, you'll have to have a, something to say. But um, I just think that this is a quite a big uh, film to come out and that needed to have succeeded. And a lot of people use this as a joke now. Yeah, you know, me, me included. It, it is an absolute like laughable thing that this took two years to come out. Um, but I think this has really big repercussions, unfortunately. And it'll just be interesting to see how Blade develops after this. I don't, I don't want to be the voice of like doom and gloom here. I realise I am sometimes that on this podcast. I can't see superhero films on a mass-produced scale as they are today existing in 20 years. I don't know if it's just me, but I think superhero fatigue... People keep on saying they're worried about superhero fatigue setting in sometime in the future. I think it already has. I think it has for a while now. I was of the strong opinion, this is probably going to get me no no fans, but I, I was of the strong opinion that the MCU should have probably just ended with Endgame. I think I'm, I'm all for kind of perfect conclusions. And I just feel like this is more MCU based than DC film based because I feel like DC, uh, with the exception of something like Wonder Woman 84, I think that's more of a generic studio film. But DC, with this new slate of films like uh, Matt Reeves' The Batman or James Gunn's Suicide Squad, I think are kind of making more uh, personable superhero films. As in, when I say personal, I mean more in the style of the specific director that they hire. And I think that's more of a unique approach than the MCU are taking. And I enjoy MCU films, don't get me wrong. I feel like this is a long uh, debate that, could, that should, should probably be had right now. But I just think the MCU as it exists currently doesn't have the legs that many people think it might do. I think, I don't know, what is it? What are we in now? Phase four? Phase, phase, phase four, isn't it? The phase four we've just started. Yeah, um, I think so. And I just, I just think, I, I can't really see us getting past, I can't really see us getting halfway into phase five before people lose interest. I mean, it's, they are trying to, they're trying to bring in fresh voices. I feel like maybe it's going to go for one more 10 year cycle, but you're right. After that, they really mm. need something new to bring in. Cause I feel Feige probably has something planned already. That's good. But I do agree that maybe after this next 10 year cycle, at least the Marvel way of producing superhero movies is going to kind of be over. They say fresh voices and they always say they're trying to bring in fresh voices. And I can see how on paper that looks like they're bringing in, they brought in Taika Waititi to do Thor Ragnarok, but yeah. it was just a slightly funnier, slightly even more quippy Marvel film than usual. It's still generic mass-produced studio production. It's not individual at all. People say, oh yeah, Thor Ragnarok's really unique because it's got Taika Waititi directing. But those are the people I think just saw Korg and were like, oh yeah, he's funny. But it has no, none of his like real personality seeping through because it's so caught up in the studio trappings that it, it, it smothers individuality behind the camera I think it smothers style the way that they control it and I'm not saying it doesn't work because obviously it does work it's like the most profitable franchise of the last like 20 years cinematically but I think the Marvel studio system the way they're doing them at the moment it kills style and kind of creativity and people would say people might throw back Guardians of the Galaxy at me but then I'll just argue that Guardians of the Galaxy just was like a evolution of that James Gunn's particular style is perhaps more evident in it, 
but what would people say differentiates Guardians from the Galaxy from any other Marvel film? The use of music, the use of funny characters, but then you could throw back Thor Ragnarok and say there's things in those. They're just melding into one, I think. And I don't really think there's much of an argument for individual style from a, from a directorial standpoint gleaning through in any of these recent Marvel films, which is a shame, but I can't see Marvel getting to a stage where they in involve X-Men in the MCU because that'd be halfway through phase five and I'm just not really here for that. I have this like really dangerous hot take regarding Marvel and, okay. uh, and, and Disney and I, I just, I find that if anyone had a sensibility over at those studios, that they would realize that you cannot have an MCU and a Star Wars universe that coexists in the same time frame of release. It doesn't work. You, it, 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 just, it, just, it just will not work and people will burn out. My idea would be that you have an MCU for 10 years, right? You have, do, do your whole phase, whatever bullshit you want to do. Have it as 10 years. Get to the end of get, end game and leave it for 10 years. Then mass produce Star Wars for 10 years and, and vice versa. That way you have... You, you understand how many films you can get out. You have quality over quantity. You have a standard level of work, but also you can understand what the fans want at that point. You, you can't make, you can't, you can't sell a film or announce it now and then in five years' time then sort of expect an audience to like it. Like, like Rory said, I, I'm, I would also agree with the, the superhero fatigue thing. I think we've gone through that now. I think we're halfway through that life cycle. I don't, I don't want to say it's, it's, got, it's dying or anything, but I think, I think there's going to have to be an evolution then. I think it would probably go towards video games at one point with the realisation of VR and stuff like that. I think it will go back into the sort of the electronic arts. Um, whereas I, 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 just, I just find that there, there needs to be sort of a mentality of that we can't swarm people. If you make something 10 years, like what Star Wars used to be like, or 15, 25 years, whatever you want to call it, you would then be able to build up the fandom once again from, from its, from its crutches. I think Star Wars is in, in a lot of shit now with what they've done with the, the last trilogy, regardless of what, what your thoughts and feelings on it, it's split. The consensus is undeniably at each other's throats. It will happen at one point to the MCU. I mean, it did, it began to sort of falter with Iron Man 2. It then faltered again with Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, and there's a recurring theme there with sequels. And I just think that those two things, you could really market them at each life stages and then keep on doing that and then understand that, well, you know, we've done 10 years of this now. Let's go back here. What works, what doesn't. But I think it is just that thing of money speaks, money talks at the end of the day, which is a shame because um, I'd like to see more Star Wars films. I'd like to see more MCU movies. But like you said, Rora, I just don't think hiring Taika Waititi to make a Thor film, while that sounds interesting, you still have the core um, components that it is a generic, you know, Thor's not going to die in it, is he? You know what I mean? Like, I just, and then, you know, you'll never be able to combat genre convention in the superhero. It just, in a superhero genre, it won't. You can never do it. And I think that's what Star Wars at least has going for it. Whereas the MCU it's a prison within itself at this point. Yeah, I don't think it's a hot take at all to say that that superhero fatigue is set in. I remember people saying years ago, 2015, 2016, that superhero fatigue had had hit. I think the only reason that people stopped talking about it is because we were getting these big event films like Infinity War and Endgame and that kind of like 
it kind of rejuvenated people's love for the genre a little bit. But now that Endgame has come and gone, and I kind of agree, I think that the MCU had should have ended after Endgame. It felt like the natural conclusion point. Uh, after that, yeah, it's back. It's back in full force, especially with three four big studios now trying their hand at the superhero cinematic universes. It all just, it's blending together. It doesn't feel special. Nothing is standing out anymore. Yeah, I do have to agree, like not to kind of like contradict my previous opinion, but I feel like it's kind of actually been changing during the podcast. But I do also have to mention that Edgar Wright and now Scott Derrickson tried to come in with their fresh voices but now apparently it's too unique for Marvel. And then they kind of just were let go because they kind of clashed. So it does show that Marvel isn't really in the business to kind of promote anyone's specific vision. And I mean, that's why I was saying X-Men in 20 years. I feel like in 10 years, there's going to be a fatigue. And as Jack was saying, there's going to be a break. And then maybe 20 years, maybe one could even say 20 to 30 years, kind of like Star Wars, that nostalgia is going to start setting in and people are going to want superhero movies again, kind of like the olden days, kind of like the MCU. And at that point, I feel people are going to want maybe the X-Men, maybe a new team, sort of like the X-Men, and they won't kind of be in that fatigue mood anymore. I think Disney has a real tendency to get very overexcited about things as well. I think that's justifiable to say, as in superhero films start working for them as so they announce a slate for the next six years. And this is a real issue within the industry as well, because Disney, are plain, plain and simple, they're booking up too much studio space so that these other films have to, you know, scrounge around to find places to shoot their film. I remember Rocketman uh, couldn't shoot at Pinewood, I think they were originally going to shoot at, because this isn't a Disney film, but because Wonder Woman 84 was shooting there and because they'd booked it four years in advance. It's a real issue, not for the remainder of the industry, but just because... You know, we've got these Disney Plus shows coming out as well. And if I'm not interested in a sequel to a film that stars my favourite superhero characters, why am I ever going to be interested in a series that might be seven or eight hours long about someone like Hawkeye or Loki or someone who are endearing characters at times, but nothing to sustain even, you know, 20 minutes of solo time in a film, let alone nine hours of their own TV show. Disney seem to think they have, you know, gold here and at a time they did but I think that's slowly losing its value over time I think the Disney hiring these directors one really good positive that it does bring is it serves as a great uh, trajectory for these directors as in they'll direct you know one or two indie films and then they'll get hired by Disney and make one big superhero film and then they're off you could say that's happened with actually no maybe not Ryan Coogler because he did Creed before he did Black Panther but like James Gunn has certainly taken off a lot more since he did Guns Galaxy and DC snapped him up. And I think it's a real benefit for the film industry as whole with Disney hiring these kind of lesser known directors to do their big films for them. But I just think that it's time to maybe slow down and if not stop, then at least space things out a little bit, as Jack said, because there comes a time like the, when the Western was the king of, Hollywood, that died a death and no one makes Westerns anymore. I think it is only a matter of time before superhero films go the same way because mass production will lead to exhaustion eventually. Just to bring it back to the, to the horror angle as well, um, it's interesting that you know, we're talking about directors uh, 
going into sort of the MCU and doing something different. Um, the next big thing that, that I think will be a very eye-opening account of what direction and the MCU really wants to take is Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange 2. That director of that quality with the horror background he's got, as well as the action um, action sort of slash horror background, but the superhero genre as well, the super, sorry, Superman, Jesus Christ, Spider-Man, before anyone comes out with the pitchforks. Um, that'll be a next big one, but I just... Just quickly, I want to talk about a little bit more about the New Mutants before I just move on. Um, it's one final thing that, that pissed me off beyond belief is the fact that I think Josh, Josh Boone, I don't know who decides to, to do it, but they shoot the aspect ratio of 185.1 on this. It's such like a, 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 an easily missable thing, but the, the fact of it's meant to be claustrophobic, it's meant to sort of um, be unescapable on a cinema screen or at home or wherever. And to be honest, I thought like they, they cocked that up something shocking here. I never once felt throughout this film the claustrophobia of this, let's not call it a prison per se, but let's call it, let's call this hospital. It just never felt like these corridors were tight. You never felt the area. There is a scene where the um, two characters are, are on a roof of sorts and we get to see sort of this overarching setting and the, the whole, let's say, building per se looks to go on for like, miles but you never ever get that quality of understanding spatial awareness of this of, of, of the setting whatsoever it's one of the major letdowns here that reinforces the fact that i think boone is out of his depth here and i, I haven't seen the fault of our stars and by all accounts i'm not missing anything but by not saying it but you know when you take mark weber out of the, uh, you know uh, you know the romance genre and you, you put him into um, you know the amazing spider-man i think you can definitely re see results there especially with the uh, uh, Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker romance, I think there's definitely positives and everything else sort of has to uh, do about, you know, <laughs> has to sort of work up towards that here. Even the romance of what Josh Boone has made before, it's terrible. But even sort of the conventional horror moments are so under par, it's unbelievable. Maybe that's me just being a bit too niche in this, but to be honest, if you can't get 185.1, if you can't get the aspect ratio to, to, help, to help and not hinder, that is the bottom line of issues. But um, moving on from one infamous to later than it, let's start now with uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Greetings, my excellent friends. Do we know you? I'm Kelly. Wait, you're Rufus's daughter. I am, and I've been wanting to meet you my whole life. It must be very disappointing. Not at all. We have a problem, gentlemen. Potentially a very serious problem. About the music? About the music. They just want to talk to you. <laughs> Dude, I got a very bad feeling about this. It'll be fine, Ted. They totally love us in the future, dude. Yet to fulfill their rock and roll destiny, their now middle-aged best friends, Bill and Ted, set out on a new adventure when a visitor from the future warns them that only their song can save life as we know it. Diego, you start us off with the latest Bill and Ted feature. Well, I actually went into this one not having watched any of its predecessors, so I kind of went in pretty blind. And I came out pretty optimistic, I'd say. I didn't expect it to be kind of so, such a feel-good film, you know? And it, while it wasn't striving to be the next best picture winner for obvious reasons, for what it was trying to be, it was, I'd say, pretty much perfect. Like it was really enjoyable, really fun. It had, the plot lines were pretty well. To be honest, the only criticism I had was that the two daughters, I'd say weren't necessarily the best 
they weren't necessarily believable as the daughters of Bill and Ted. I don't know if they're hoping to reboot it or kind of make a sequel with them as the stars, but I know I've heard rumors about that, but I would strongly recommend against it because while they both are great actresses and I've seen them in other stuff, they, I, I'd say they were pretty much miscast in this film because they just weren't believable at all. But apart from that, I do feel like it was very enjoyable, very fun. It really kind of hit those four quadrants that Marvel films do a lot. And as someone who likes comedy, but who hasn't necessarily watched these films before, there were quite a few comedic bits that really made me chuckle. And there was a lot more funnier bits than what I expected coming in. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I, I totally disagree about the daughters in the film. I actually thought that their plot line was, was better than the main plot line with Keanu and Alice Winters. And especially uh, Bridget Lundy Payne, I thought uh, they were great as the daughter of, of Keanu. I thought the movie was very enjoyable. I hadn't seen the first two movies before a few days ago. I watched them in preparation and I thought they were very enjoyable, very clever films. Not necessarily my type of humor, but they worked because of how they were written. And I was, I was excited, but kind of cautious about this one because when a franchise is going back after so many years, it tends to kind of fall on its face sometimes, but this one didn't. I thought that it started kind of rough. I thought the first 30 minutes were very rocky. It took a while for uh, Keanu and Alex Winter to kind of get their mojo back. But once they did, once the time traveling adventure kind of starts, it's very entertaining. <clears throat> it's very lighthearted and it's very optimistic. And that's kind of the best thing about the film, the best quality is that it's relentlessly positive and optimistic, especially in the climax. It's a very feel-good movie in these very dark times that we live in. I will say I felt that the film kind of looked cheap. And there's not an official budget released for it, but people are estimating that it's about $25 million. And I don't think that this film looks like a $25 million project. It kind of reminds me of something that would be on the sci-fi channel. But beyond that, the film isn't going for, you know, an amazing cinematic look. It's going for capturing that nostalgia. And in that regard, I think it works fairly well. I think it's a funny, likable film. And I think the third act is definitely the best part of the film. Uh, I'm a fan of the Bill and Ted franchise. I have been for a while. Uh, more so of Excellence Adventure than Burgess Journey. But um, I'm sure we'll fight that out later. Jack's <laughs> not very pleased with that statement, but hey-ho. Uh, yeah, I am a fan of it. I've seen Excellent Adventure four or five times. And it's just a kind of nice, chilled, pretty funny movie to switch on. I don't really know any films that are headlined by characters like Bill and Ted. Obviously, there are a lot of kind of stoner comedies that happen throughout the years. But none put these kind of characters front and centre, which is nice to see. And I think what differentiates Bill and Ted from other comedies of this kind also the fact it doesn't get wrapped up in the whole stoner comedy aspect even though that is definitely subtextual i suppose to the whole creation of these characters there is always a worry about these belated sequels uh you know that are made 20 25 years after the original that they're just trying to cash in on nostalgia and you know it's more of a cash grab than a creative ordeal uh, i'm slightly 
wondering where this one stands on that. I don't think it is a cash grab. I don't think it's a film that had to be made, shall I say. I don't think the narrative that happens in this one was essential to give closure to these Bill and Ted fans who've been craving this sequel for the last 25 years. But um, I think these belated sequels have been getting a lot better recently. You know, we talked about Mad Max Fury Road and Split and Blade Runner 2049. They seem to be more of a creative pursuit than anything else. Blade Runner perhaps unintentionally didn't make any money, but you know, these things happen. I was really worried about how Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter would come off it. Alex Winter, we haven't really seen much of at all since he was in the original films and Keanu obviously has become the biggest action star of maybe the last like 10 years with John Wick and The Matrix and everything like that. He's had a real renaissance. Um, and I was really worried about him getting back into this role because I haven't really seen him do this since Bogus Journey, but they slip into it really well. They slip back into it really easily as if no time has passed. I think that takes, that's a real credit to their talent. I mean, they aren't particularly difficult characters to play, I can imagine, but they're so iconic and steamed in the zeitgeist of these films that it would be very noticeable if they were changed at all. But it's literally as if, you know, no difference, like we're back in the 90s or 80s or when these films came out. It's really weird. I was thinking about today, Keanu Reeves, had the potential to go down a very different route with his career, I think. I think he obviously became the action star we all know and love, but if you were sitting there in the cinemas watching Bill and Ted when it first came out, you'd probably expect him to see him in like Judd Apatow movies or something like that. He could have been like a Jay Baruchel figure. Thank God he's not. No, 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 you know, not being so mean or horrible to Jay Baruchel. He's got his own positives, but Keanu Reeves could have been that kind of actor, which is really weird to think about. I agree with Carl. I think Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne are awesome in this movie. I think they literally are like Little Bill and Little Ted, as they were referred to at the end of Burgess Journey and in this one. They capture, I think that the joke is with those two is that they are literally carbon copies of their dads. And I think they do it perfectly. Samara Weaving is actually one of my favorite actresses at the moment. She's awesome in, you know, Ready or Not and Mayhem and things like that. She She really tears up those kind of, exploitation grindhouse movies that are coming out at the moment uh, and yeah they're both perfect Bridget Lundy Payne I think they are probably the better performed of the two in this case purely because they mimic Keanu Reeves so well it's not even funny like it has to be seen to be believed but it's awesome to see and it's it's a kind of character that you think will get bogged down or won't be particularly interesting compared to you know our focal leads but yeah, as, as Carl was saying, they, they steal the show, I think, a little bit. Uh, and they definitely have a more interesting uh, narrative than Bill and Ted doing this, which is strange, but, you know, be that as it may. It's a nice trilogy, Ender. I, I agree, Diego was saying it looks like they're trying to set up like Bill and Ted for the next generation with these two. But uh, I really don't think we need that. I think this is a nice little trilogy, Ender, to a series that probably when they set out to make the first one was never intended to go beyond excellent adventure, but now we've got a trilogy and it's a fun time and we can just end it now because this is a nice little conclusion. I don't think we need to go any further than this. Uh, my main issue with Bill and Ted, this film, I don't have many problems with it, but my issue is, is that the plot here is essentially a quite repetitive amalgamation of excellent adventure and bogus journey. So the main plot is Bill and Ted trying to find this song, but then, you know, they end up in hell as they do in Bogus Journey Encounter Death, and that's a big point for them. 
and then their daughters spend the time going around history and creating this ultimate band for, for historical figures, much like they did with historical figures for their project in Excellent Adventure. And I'm not saying it's done poorly. I think it's a really entertaining, fun ride, but I did think they might have taken it in a bit of a more ambitious or interesting or kind of untrodden direction. It's, it's very much a combination of the first two movies put together in, in one which isn't, you know, to say it's bad. I think it's a really fun time, but I kind of wish they'd done something more interesting with the plot. I do agree, it does look a bit cheap. Uh, I think that adds to part of the charm in a way. There's something really, I couldn't help but crack a smile when they're in this kind of celestial version of San Dimas in 2350 or whenever it is, and they're just kind of two airhead dudes hanging out, not really know what's going on playing with time machines. It's, I think that's where the real charm of this series comes from, is that it's two people who've got no idea what they're doing messing with the time-space continuum and having no intentions for the repercussions. And I do love, especially after watching Tenet, how just loose this film is with time travel rules. Like, it doesn't care what happens. There's no real uh, repercussions. Because once again, it's not that kind of film. It's just a fun, careless time that you can switch on with your mates and have fun. And yeah, as you were saying, Carl, it's just a hugely optimistic and positive experience. I think that's what we all need right now. And this, they're very different films, but I think atmospherically this ties in very well with David Copperfield they're both very optimistic and just not as well David Copperfield probably isn't relaxed but just very positive films my one one big gripe with this movie is uh one that I don't know if you guys I don't know what you guys think of this but the inclusion of Kid Cudi in this movie angers me to no end I'm not like a diehard Bill and Ted fan but I do like and respect the films that came before it and this one and i just really 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 hate it when celebrities play themselves in movies there's something so like smarmy and kind of arrogant about celebrities playing themselves in films and the fact that kid cuddy's like referenced by name several times in this and they all kind of have there are beats where he literally is the main focal point of a certain conversation at a certain time and it just angers me there's nothing wrong with having like Jimi hendrix or mozart in this because that's the point of the film it's going through time and having historical figures but having some kind of vaguely relevant rapper rock up in a bill and ted film just and the funny thing is that it's oh kid cuddy and bill and ted isn't that funny it's not funny it's boring get out of my bill and ted film you shouldn't be here thanks very much i really didn't like that gag of kid cuddy coming in and being like the mathematical genius that helps him out in some cases and i really don't think that he's that good of an actor if you take celebrities that are good actors like it, can be passable even though it's they're always cringy but it can be passable but here it really doesn't help that kid cuddy's just not a good actor at least in this situation in what he was actually fine but it's a less funny version of ice tea and rick and morty essentially yeah yeah exactly exactly i feel like that's what they were going for and they just didn't achieve it at all continuing the trend of hot takes i get ready for this one um, I do think that Bogus Journey is the best Bill and Ted film, just purely because it just doesn't give an iota of a shit about what it is. I think that the first, I think Excellent Adventure is the defining 80s mover. But granted, it comes on the back end of the 80s, but, and this is the hot take here, I think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure has got more impact on the zeitgeist than uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I'll stand by that to the day I die. Seriously, I think the... What has come out of uh, Barry Spooler, again, yes, it's been very iconic and it's got terrific iconography, yes, but what came out of Bill and Ted has been far more influential than, 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 than 
than Ferris Bueller. But then again, not Bogus Journey. I think Bogus Journey, I think, uh, just generally just adds to the whole um, back catalogue of, of Bill and Ted really well. And I think that's why I find my my personal favourite in it. But just, just moving on to Bill and Ted, uh, Face of Music. I, again, I think the consensus here is that I'm probably on the same at everyone's level here. However, after all said and done with this film, it just felt far too quick and rushed for my liking. After 29 years of seeing these two characters, I think the, the audience deserved a little more time exploring this group. Again, I think that's an issue with how the two plots converge and go off. Regardless, I, I just think that you don't get any time to sort of monitor how these two characters have developed in their world. There is a sort of this montage at the beginning and there's an interesting scene, a couple's th- therapy, which is, which is quite funny. But from that moment forward, it is simply just thrown into it where I, I wanted to really see how these two, uh, as Rory put, airheads um, have developed in this world of this responsibility. And it's very difficult with how the film is edited and, and, and paced that you can see um, or feel that responsibility on the, their shoulders. My other hot take here, and, I, and, and I'm, Keanu Reeves is a god in my house, so I don't want to speak too, too unfriendly on him, but out of him and Alex Winter, and it should be noted that Keanu Reeves has, has gone from Bill and Ted Bogus Journey in 1991 and has skyrocketed throughout the, the last 29 years. Alex Winter hasn't. He's taken a step back, re-sort re of vitalised his career behind the camera with a, a string of very well-made and interesting documentaries. One in particular that goes on the dark web, that I think um, will probably be my recommendation this week, but not to speak uh, too quick on it. Alex Winter's had to take acting lessons to get back in the swing of things. And from the performances I saw with this film, I think Alex Winter is a standout here more so than Reeves. I think Reeves has, has moved on from this role. And I think what Rory said about that transition of where he could have gone, um, I think Reeves has really tried to remove himself from that um, quintessential airhead role. Because I, he, he, I think he's been quoted on numerous occasions that one of his biggest regrets in life, the possibility of one, should I say, is that uh, on, his, on his gravestone, it'll say, this is where... Um, Bill resides. Is, is he? I don't know if he's Bill in this. I'm not. I'm not too sure. Ted That's Theodore Ted. Logan. He's yeah. Ted Theodore Logan. I think he, one of his big worries was that that would reside on his tombstone. And I think it's a very interesting sort of complexion for him to go against because they've wanted to make this film for a long time, and he's had a relationship with Alex Winter throughout these 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 last three decades. Um, but I just think he's very much reserved in this. He feels like he's doing this as a favor to Winter. Um, but Winter shows it all. Winter's charisma, especially when they're doing um, a little bit of like a Rolling Stone impersonation towards the middle act. Winter just gives it his all. I think he's really refreshing here. And that's not to say Reeves is, is bad per se, but it just feels like he is doing him a favour. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. I think they're both, they're, they're both here. They're doing a, a good job, don't get me wrong. And I think the film overall has a lot to say about, about you know, society, about, um, you know, responsibility. And I think, especially how it presents its climax of understanding of when to let go. And I think it's interesting how it ties back into the MCU thing is that in life, sometimes you've got to realise that, that, that your career path or your expectations of life has, is coming towards um, a climactic uh, head rather than it having its next evolution. And I think this film does it relatively well, but 
the, the biggest concern I have about the film, and there's two of them really, first of all, the cheap nature. I never really felt that until we actually go to the future and when we go to the celestial part, like, uh, like Rory said. That to me felt so criminally cheap. It was, it was slightly um, jarring. I did appreciate the George Carlin little bit of a, a nod. I thought that was a really nice little homage they did. Lastly, though, and this is where I think, and I hope Kyle backs me up on this, the one thing that upset me as a Bill and Ted fan is that I really like Bogus Journey, as I've said. The fact that William Sadler here is really wasted as the iconic rendition of death, that we only sort of spend, what, eight minutes of screen time with him. I, I was so sort of let down and underwhelmed by that because Sadler, in, in sort of this little bit glorified cameo, injects all that nostalgia. It just brings it all full circle. And seeing them, all of them interact, like they did in Bogus Journey, uh, really did sort of spark this nostalgic thing inside me. But it, it is just a shame. But I think the problem is, is that this was, this was shot in like 21 days. And, and like Kyle said about the budget, I also don't think that that budget is quite right. It definitely feels cheaper. And it's a film that most definitely has... It's definitely constructed in a way of timing schedules to get everyone involved. I think that's most definitely something as well. Just to, re to speak on the Kid Cudi very quickly, um, he, he's got like a, a recurring theme of this. He was in the Adam Devine Jexy, which is an absolute uh, bag of shite, if I can put it so bluntly. Um, and he's done it quite lately. Uh, like I said, he, he's got a recurring theme of putting himself into these works. I don't know if that is because he wants to get himself on the radar or he wants to sort of revitalize his career. Um, it wasn't too jarring for me here. It was slightly like, okay, are we doing this? Every time he's referenced as Kikudi. And I thought like this, the expectation of him being this genius was, was actually relatively funny for the most part. Um, it didn't sort of bring me out of it. However, I can see why Rora and yourself, Diego, don't like it and I think you I, I think it will be a, a give and take scenario but for me I, I can take it because I was I really wanted to see this film and to see it do this well and get favorable reviews is a quite a heartwarming thing because I think these like I said about excellent adventure I don't think it gets the uh, um, influence it does or recognition it deserves um, but lastly, I do want to talk about the, the, the two daughters in the film which I think is going to be a big thing um, I'll start with uh, Bridget uh, Lundy-Payne, they are tremendous in this. If you could ever get a personification of what Keanu Reeves' character is like, that is it in a T. I thought it was very heartwarming. I, I, I thought they were exceptional throughout. The quirks, the nuance, the subtlety of reinforcing that character. It was like they were staring in a mirror at one point. However, just to go against my hot take, I think Samara Weaving here, and I think, as Rory said, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of her career as, a, as of late, especially as a developing scream queen. I think she's outstanding. Here, I think she's miscast. Every time that she is on screen, it just feels slightly like, it's like, uh, oh, it, it, I don't want to say parody, but it just felt like she, was, she didn't really know what to do or how to sort of um, echo Alex Winter's character. And granted, out of the two of them, I think that Keanu Reeves is, is Ted throughout the, the, the trilogy. It's not this one, but the, the first two. He does have that movie star quality of charisma. And again, it's difficult to live up to that. But here, Winter is so... Is so, so um, is, he constructs such an interesting and charismatic character. And he's just full of, 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 of um, engagement. 
Samara Weaving just feels like it's not anywhere on par. And I think it's not really her fault. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I just think that, that the actress doesn't really go toe-to-toe with Winter. Um, and overall, when the film ends, it just felt like them, them two characters didn't really deserve the payoff that they got, which is unfortunate. But other than that, again, to, to, to say this is a film, a belated sequel 29 years after the fact, um, I can't sort of praise it. Uh, I can't give it enough praise, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, when I originally said the comment about the daughters, I wasn't really trying to single anyone out. But while I do feel like uh, Ted's daughter does do a like a decent job, I wouldn't say it's like mind blowing, but she does. You she does have those mannerisms that you can definitely tell their father and daughter. But even though Samara Weaving, she's a great actress. I loved her in Ready or Not. She was she was incredible in that film. Here, you can tell her comedic timing and kind of her mannerisms. She wasn't really getting it in terms of Bill, and it just like it just seemed like she was trying to be kind of a normal daughterish, which doesn't really go with what Bill, Bill's personality, what, with what Bill was trying to exude in past movies. So I do feel that she was woefully miscast, but she is still a great actress. Uh, to respond to a couple points, yeah, the Kid Cudi thing, I can't say it bothered me personally. I was deathly afraid that he was going to, he was going to perform one of his songs, and I'm very glad that they didn't go that direction with it. But as far as celebrities playing themselves, I found this one to be not very distracting. It, and I did chuckle a couple times at, the, at him being a genius. Yeah, I just think that the movie as a whole is as cheap as it may look in parts. And I agree with you, Jack Luke, that um, when they go to the future for the first time, that was the most distracting scene. I, as far as the, the look of the film and the visual effects, I thought that it was incredibly distracting. But as it went on and they started to kind of incorporate, you know, real sets into it, like hell, I thought that it, it did improve. And I did kind of like the cheap look of, of hell. I thought it was, was fun. But yes, they did waste William Sadler, who is the best part of all three of the films. And I agree with you that... Uh, Bogus Journey is the best Bill and Ted film by a, by a decent margin. It's the one that showcases the most creativity with the concept. And that's in large part due to William Sadler. And I wish he was used better here because when he showed up, I was very happy until I realized we were in the last 15 minutes of the film. And this is a glorified cameo. Speaking of glorified cameras, I've just got to put in here. I don't know if anyone agrees with them, but there's one thing we haven't mentioned. And I'm not going to mention too much on it because I think it's a nice little um, cameo. When I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to be tr- try to be very, very, very um, on the nose here and not give, enough, uh, not give a lot away. But uh, when Anthony Carrigan's character turns up, um, that was the biggest red flag for me that went up. And I was extremely worried of what they were going to do there with that. However, to say that that was the most... <laughs> comedic uh, influential part of the film and how sort of it, it, it I wouldn't say it, it, it was against expectation but I thought they were going to do this sort of futuristic uh, adding a character and it would be like oh right there's another third party here but then how they sort of twist that on its head and then make him 
um, have like, sort of this comedic and again like sensibility and really project that because I think he's done really good on Barry at the HBO show with Bill Hader. I was really really glad to see him sort of develop this little I don't want to say gimmick but it was it was it was like one little notion of the films where it felt felt like uh, William Sadler's death in bogus journey where it was a nice addition to the overall film that doesn't take away but it's just full of character and full of um uh, uh, like comedic nature. Um, another thing that I wasn't particularly fond of, and it's a recurring theme, is that there's a lot of here, there's a lot involved here where there's a lot of characters who are related to each other. Um, and understand that that might be a conscious thing where the film's sort of making that again as a joke, but it felt a little bit too overused at time because there's this, uh, I, I, the name sort of often escapes me, um, but if I just find it here, I believe is it Kirsten Schaal? Kristen Schaal. She plays essentially what George Carlin did in, in the uh, uh, 1989 film. Um, and then obviously, of course, she has to play his daughter. And to me, it was just like, I understand what they're doing there, but it just didn't need, it didn't need to do that. It didn't need to add more context to that character because I think I thought the film itself did a really nice homage to George Carlin. Uh, there's a few other cameos here that are going to work for people and then not work for others. And I'll let that, you know, you, you to watch it on yourself. But overall, just to echo what everyone said, um, uh, well, no, actually, just to add one more thing is that I know that, Diego, you've sort of implied that you think this is a reboot. Um, I got no sort of sense of that. I think this is it. This, I don't think this ever sets up anything else. I think it's, a, it's an interesting film where it ends these characters understanding their career paths or their paths and not what they thought it was going to be. And it's okay to let go of that. Um, and that's not to spoil it or anything. It's just, they have to find other ways. They haven't written that song. Let's find another way. And, and then in the course of the film, obviously, that's what it's about. But I have no inclination of them ever going to go, go again. This is it for Bill and Ted. It has to be. There's nowhere else it can go. I mean, the two um, performers who do play uh, their daughters here, um, I don't think that can sort of project another franchise whatsoever. And who really needs a fourth Bill and Ted movie? I don't think we ever really needed a third one to begin with. It's nice to see these two back. I could have lived without this. I could, I could have very well have lived on Bogus Journey for the rest of my days. And obviously the most influential uh, 80s comedy, Bill and Ted, far more superior than Ferris Bueller. Um, but overall, I think, again, um, it's just nice to see this being received in the way it has, because when it came out, uh, well, sorry, when it was announced, 21-day cycle of a shooting thing, which, again, for me, is a very, very big red flag. For then to have a running time of 71 minutes, not including credits, is a second major flag. For this to come out with the expectation it didn't really have, especially within, it was definitely going to get a cinematic release. And you could see that, you know, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter would go again on the uh, uh, advertisement path, trying to sell the film again to all these, uh, you know, shows and stuff. That's the one major thing I feel very, very gutted for with Alex Winter. Because I, I, I was just hoping that this would have been, I, I've always, I've got a lot of time for a winter fair, anyone's not already guessed, but I think it's just a sad sort of state of affairs that this came out in coronavirus because they, wouldn't, they weren't allowed to go on the world stage again and they weren't allowed to sort of indulge on that partnership, which for 29 years, I think they deserved it. But all in all, it's so refreshing to see that this has come out and, and, and had a positive influence because I think it had everything against it. And all in all, I think this isn't going to be a major box office hit, no doubt. But it's refreshing to know that after 29 years, Alex Winter has still got it as that character. 
and they've still got that dynamic relationship. And like Rory said, even though I don't really agree with Reeves being full throttle in it, it they do slip into this like like a good pair of old shoes. And it was so nice to watch it because we've seen stuff like this in the, in the past of, you know, going back to a franchise. We've seen it with Blade Runner. We've seen it with Alien. You know, we have all these blockbusters. Um, and it is nice to, to, to go back to something that was, was sort of to and done and, uh, and really indulge in it. So overall, I just sort of leave it with, with a heartwarming promise of, I don't really want to see a fourth one and I'm glad we've got this and it's, and it's over and done with, to be honest. Yeah, I, the only thing I have to add to that is, is I did think Anthony Kerrigan was great. I forgot to mention him earlier. I'm a, big, I'm, I'm a fan of Barry and to see him kind of get these, these bigger roles now is, is very heartwarming. Yeah, Anthony Kerrigan was great. I loved him. I also forgot to mention that. I don't know what that was, but he was really, I'd say, maybe the highlight of the movie, looking back. I would say that I couldn't stop helping myself think that Anthony Kerrigan looked like Sam Worthington from The Titan, if anyone's seen that. But great movie, yeah, this was fun. Last but not least, let's move on next to the personal history of David Copperfield. You were staring slightly. Is there something wrong with me? No, goodness me, no. I, I apologise for my rudeness. Oh. He's apologising, Jeff. Shall we forgive him? He says we shall. Thank you, Chip. Think nothing of it, sir. Speaks very well. It was actually me. <laughs> I like to pretend he speaks. Some people think it idiotic. Oh, no. I, I, I do it myself all the time. Uh, don't I, Mr. Appletree? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, um, David Copperfield. Are you still being the tree? No. I'm Dora. The personal history of David Copperfield chronicles the life of its iconic title character as he navigates a chaotic world to find his elusive place within it. Rory finishes out this week strong. So, as an English student, I can confirm that I do not like Dickens. I think he is boring, I've studied great expectations about four times, and it's never hit with me. But when I say this is my thing, I mean, like, Armando Iannucci is one of the jewels in the crown of British comedy, maybe alongside the likes of Chris Morris, Matt Berry, uh, Graham Linehan, Jesse Armstrong, people like that. They're all very influential on the British comedy circuit. And that is just like my thing in a nutshell. You look at like uh, The Thick of It, Mighty Boosh, Toast of London, Heap Show, uh, IT Crowd. It's all there. That's all up my street completely. So anything from Armando Iannucci, I'm always going to check out. And it's an interesting one for me because I wasn't a fan of his last feature effort, which was The Death of Stalin. I'm not sure particularly why. It might be something I need to rewatch, but I remember really looking forward to it and then never being hit by it on any kind of major level, which was bizarre for something from this director. But this was a real change of pace and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a period piece of modern audiences. People are referencing uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women a lot. It's interesting because everyone assumes period pieces with this kind of boring vibe, but alongside Little Women and arguably Anya Taylor-Joy's Emma, which came out, I think, earlier this year. They seem to have a bit of a new approach to the way they're making these, which I'm not against at all. Every time I've seen it, it works really well for me. I think Little Women's one of the best films of 2019, and I think this is one of the best films of 2020, so I can't really argue with it. 
they seem to be able to maintain this old-timey feel with the dialogue and the production design, but imbue it with a really sharp kind of modern wit, which is really nice to see. I think that comes hand in hand with having Armando Nietzsche direct and with the characters, which I'll get onto in a sec, but the way they modernise this whilst also retaining the core of the story and the context in which it was written in is really, really nice and really well done. But the highlight for this is far and away the characters. The characters in this film are just phenomenal. I don't want to over-egg it, but these may be some of the most, some of the best characters I've seen in a film this year. Uh, Obviously that is partially thanks to my man, Charles Dickens, uh, who I don't give much credit to about anything, but if if Armando found the characters that are represented on screen here in those books, then well done to him, eh? So yeah, so Tilda Swinton is probably my favourite in this one. She plays this kind of boisterous, slapdash, slapstick uh, aunt figure. And her relationship with Hugh Laurie is definitely one, one of the one of the biggest aspects of this film that I really enjoyed. Hugh Laurie plays this character called Mr. Dick, who's this. I made an about time reference in my in my letterbox review to this. He's a very Uncle Desmond character, this kind of away with the fairies family figure who's at the heart of this slapdash family but he's you know a bit confused and a bit unsure of himself but he he plays this very charming likable character very well and him and Tilda Swinton bounce off each other really well uh Dev Patel is the lead and he's stellar I think Dev Patel's been a real up-and-comer in the British film industry especially since since he was in Skins probably which was what the early mid-2000s and from then on he's gone to do things like uh Garth Evans's Lion which is Utterly fantastic, if no one's seen that. Uh, a real tearjerker, though. So he's strong in this as well. And, and it's one of those films where the lead actor is... He, he holds it up, but I think he's overshadowed by his supporting cast, which is no bad thing at all, because they pop in and pop out throughout the majority of the movie. And Peter Capaldi is another one worth mentioning. And they are really the backbone of this feature and his interactions with these wacky, zany characters and the differences between them. And it all comes together at the end very nicely. The ending reminded me a bit of uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish, where everyone comes together and it's all very jovial and happy. I think I think it's a really fantastic character piece. The production design here really blows me away. I'm a big fan of spotting out production design in films. And the way they designed the interiors and uh, the, ex- the, uh, the location scouts have done a really good job in this film as well, of these coastal... Uh, country houses and wide open meadows and really tight horrible Victorian London back streets and workhouses and everything like that it's all beautifully done Uh, and the docks as well and the interiors of these stuffy kind of smoky apartments after after a Victorian rager with a few too many glasses of port you know Uh, it's all it's all done just beautifully and the top-notch production design there and one thing I became to notice at the end is how well it's shot. Furthermore, uh, it's it's there's a, there's a scene at the end that takes place on a beach, which any fans of the book will will know that is lit. It's lit through like bonfires on the beach, and it's all got like this bluish color palette, and it's just one of the most like breathtaking vistas. And it's something that kind of sleeps on you because everything in this film comes together and works so well that. The cinematography almost flies past you, but it is really well done. And as I was saying about Bill and Ted, this is just a really optimistic and happy film. And I think this is the kind of thing we really need at the moment. It doesn't try to 
push any huge political agenda because it's based off a story that was, you know, written in the 1800s. But it's just so happy and it doesn't try and be pretentious like a lot of, of period dramas does. It doesn't have any sense of um, self-importance because I know a lot of period dramas do sometimes have that when they think they're adapting this great literary work and almost doing you a favour for bringing this to your screen because you can't be bothered to read it, which I can't. But um, it's just a really, really happy, jovial film with a fantastic cast. It looks amazing. There's really not much to not like here. I didn't think this would be for me purely because it's a period piece, but I keep getting proven wrong for that. So, yeah, this is probably one of my favourite films of the year. Just to fill my ego, it's very rare that um, I go second. I'm glad I've gone second um, having this discussion because... I haven't seen this film since January the 17th. And to be honest, just listening to Rory talk about it in such a heartwarming and in fact warming way has reminded me of, of why I really, really like this film. I'm a fan of uh, Amando um, Inucci's uh, comedy. I think where me and Rory might differ is I think I prefer, um, I think I, I come in from a different angle. I think I much prefer The Death of Stalin over, over his other comedic, features. Um, I like his political route um, most definitely, but I think The Death of Stalin just came out at the time for me, I think, probably where this has come out for Rora. Um, whereas I thought, I, I, I like pessimistic um, comedy, and whereas I, this is more optimistic, this is more uplifting. Um, and while I do enjoy this, I do prefer that, that sort of slightly darker uh, comedic nature. But nevertheless, this is so wonderfully made, it's unbelievable. I think, again, the production design um, is, is just stunning throughout. The colour palette, um, the, the the costume the the, the just genuinely the color um, grading throughout um, everything is just so eye war eye, eye warming if that's even a phrase the performances again another evolution Tilda Swinton again is a standout I think every scene that she's in she just knocks it out of the park but I think ultimately um, Paul Whitehouse does a really spectacular um, little character here as does Hugh, Hugh Laurie I think also is, is really engaging. But um, the one person I think should get the plaudits here is how Dev Patel, throughout all this stacked cast listing, generally stands out from the crowd, how he has to sort of deal with that and still puts in a really remarkable um, dynamic uh, character. I think I have a few slight issues with it, but I think, it, it, again, it, it's just a film that is genuinely really, really well made. I think, like I said, it's, it's incredibly rousing, comedic bravado, I think it's profound as well. Don't get me wrong. I think I come at it from another angle as well. I, 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 when I was at school, Christ, um, that sounds really old. I didn't leave school you know, not that many years ago, but I studied Shakespeare, not Dickens. So I think I come at it from a, another palate cleanser as well, where it's nice to see, uh, you know, a, a different sort of um, adaption uh, from a book that I haven't been drained from reading, such as like Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and so on and so forth. So, Again, I, I, I never found the sort of the material itself to be off-putting, but I would love, love to have re- read the book beforehand to see how Ian Ucci's, uh, how, he, how he would specifically would have adapted it, because I think, Rory, you see it in a wonderful eye that I'm generally quite jealous of. But o- overall, I, again, I, I haven't seen this since January, so I'm really struggling to sort of formulate a really strong opinion to it. But I remember when I saw it, I was relatively really, really surprised of how heartwarming it was. I mean, I remember at one point when it was... 
it was starting to be booked up at a sort of independent cinema uh, that it was a report like two hours and a, two hours and a half or maybe 245 and I'm glad it's not it's about I think it's about 156 and at, at times you do sort of feel that pacing but everything inside of the film is so engaging and and charismatic you sort of forget about that running time the one thing I think it does have going against it, and I think it does in general in film, is that there are too many characters at one point. And, I, and again, I think where you like the ending, and I think I do, and it needs that uh, sort of throning character throughout to make that ending as powerful as it is with everyone coming together and appreciating David Copperfield and, and well, him appreciating his life and who he has around him. It is so stacked at one point, it, it becomes slightly jarring. And there's loads of people fighting to, to sort of get that limelight. It feels like, um, you know, a Friday night, you know, down at the, the, uh, the comedy factory in LA, everyone is fighting for that limelight, like for those six minutes. But overall, this is a really, 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 really good effort from Inucci. But I do prefer that pessimistic, comedic, political agenda rather than something as uplifting as this. But nevertheless, like I said, not to go on and on, but um, I really, really enjoyed this piece. Like Rory, I'm not a fan of Dickens at all. I found Great Expectations painful to get through. And I'm not usually a fan of period piece films either. But this one, this one was different for me. Uh, this is one of my favorite films of the year. I thought it had this whimsy, this magic about it that really was heartwarming. And... Um, uh, to speak on budget uh, real quick, because we mentioned it earlier for Bill and Ted, this one had nearly half the budget of Bill and Ted, $15.6 million, and it looks so much better. The production and costume design is fantastic. Oscar-worthy production design in, in general. They really captured that time period in an incredible fashion. The acting from everyone is impressive. The two standouts for me were Hugh Laurie and, and Dev Patel, as everyone said, but I also thought that Ben Wishaw was great as this, this slimy, very creepy character. You can tell that it was adapted from a 600 page book because the pacing is so quick and they're trying to cram so much into a two hour time span is almost too fast, but they somehow find a way to make it work and to balance all these characters and all these plot lines in a satisfying way. Like Rory said earlier, it fits really well with Bill and Ted in this very optimistic, hopeful kind of cinema. It's very happy, it's very jovial, and it makes you feel good by the end, which is what I think we need right now. Can I just uh, interject here? There's, I, I've done this twice already because of the uh, Anthony Carrigan character, but the, I'm a massive fan of this country on uh, BBC. I, I genuinely love what the Coopers do there. And um, again, we talk, I talk about a stacked cast here, and I, I wanted to sort of mention Paul Whitehouse, but Daisy May Cooper here is so funny. It's unbelievable. I, I, I just hope that she gets sort of this vitalised career in this medium on a larger level because it's so just and deserved. She's only in this film for about six or seven minutes and she, she's, she's, I think she plays sort of this maid character. Again, I've been a long time since I've seen it. But in each and every scene that she's in, she, she, she never feels like a witness or a sort of participation award is given to her. She's there, even if, if she's in spirit, she still lifts that scene regardless. I think Ben Wishaw also does it like you said, Kyle. 
again, not to contradict myself, and I, and I, I do think this film is stacked beyond belief, um, but just to sort of reinforce my point that I've said beforehand is that every single performer here still stands out, even if they're a background, background character. Um, and I, I don't know to, to sort of separate that as that's Ianucci's um, involvement or it's how they've been left and able to sort of adapt their character. If it's the former, again, he's a, an outstanding writer. I don't think anyone could argue against that. But I, I hope it's more so the latter, because I think it gives these characters, so it gives these actors, should I say, a really, really good bit of plaudits that they've been able to use this material and have their sort of acting prowess stand out for themselves. I mean, Peter Capaldi here with his chicken. I mean, that is not iconic cinema. I don't know what else is. I think Gwendolyn Christie plays probably one of the most evil witches on film in some time. Um, and it's nice to really see her even in a small role, showcase uh, charisma, character, and an engagement value. It's a shame that if she was ever in a Star Wars film, they could do something like that. But um, I think we'll still have to see that day. Um, could realize that realization. I think Benedict Wong here is another you know, well-known English actor who's been on, you know, the likes of IT crowd and stuff like that. He also stands out. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But again, it is just one of those films where, at, you know, two hours and it being a, a Dickens adaption, even though it has got this colour blindness to it, which I generally also rather enjoy. It's just something unique to watch. It, it is a film that is going to get lost in that sort of murky waters of, oh, it's a Dickens ad adaption, do I really want to watch that? And to be honest, I think it can be separated, its comedic value from that, and it can still stand strong. And again, I, I can't really give more plaudits to this film than they already are, so I'll, I'll, I'll move on for someone else to say, but again, just to reinforce it, I, 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 the more I think about this film, the more I, I, I really, really do want to go back and watch it, more so than ever read Dickens, which probably says enough about me as a person, <laughs> that all you need to know. Yeah, so I came into this film not really having read the novel. I just knew Armando Iannucci. And to be honest, when I saw Death of Stalin, it kind of fell flat for me, which I know like is kind of a controversial opinion, but I just, I didn't really find it funny. However, this film, even though it does rush over a couple of scenes and stuff like that, which does kind of lessen its overall impact. I still found it very heartwarming, a very, it's a feel good film. The comedy actually kind of works and the casting was just impeccable. Like I, it, it was a very enjoyable film, nothing special that I'm gonna remember at the end of the year, like Rory, but I, I really liked it and it was a fun time to watch it. I think there's something big to say about Armando Iannucci as a talent and as a staple of this kind of British comedy sphere at the moment in the fact of the actors that he gets to work with him here. So if this was made on, what, half the budget that Bill and Ted supposedly was, and you think about people who've, who, are, who are in this, who are great actors, but one can assume very expensive. And, he, you know, Gwendolyn Christie rocks up in this. She's maybe got five minutes of screen time. And those are scenes that she shares. They're not just hers. I think it's a real credit to... Armando Iannucci's talent that all these actors are willing to work with him, presumably for a lower fee, just so they can, you know, have a chance to be directed by him and work under a script that he co-wrote and be in one of his productions. I think that's a real special thing. I think it's also a kind of a, a mark of quality 
not just having a stacked cast, but having a stacked cast under a kind of pretty prestige director on a low budget, making song that he really wants to make and clearly is just imbued with so much passion. It's just a really special film, I think. And I think if people are doubting it or wondering if they should give it a chance or not, it's definitely one worth diving in for. Just to add one more thing as well, um, it'll be interesting. Well, I'm just sorry, just to just to note that the reason why I saw this in January the 17th is because it came out in the UK in January the 17th. We're just reviewing it now because it's just been released limited um, in the states. Whether that is has been because of um, or was meant to be limited in the states due to coronavirus, I, I think that um, I'll, I'll need to sort of get um, a fact on that. However, it'll be interesting to see if this has legs in in the US or internationally because. Um, Inucci's it most definitely has got you know American pull with you know the likes of Veep and and I think most of his work transcends the medium because of its overall themes and thoughts about about the world. But this is very um, very English to a degree where it'll be interesting to see if it does translate. However, with sort of this revitalised um, look into sort of <laughs> England at that point, especially with the um, uh, Downton Abbey, and 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 and, and I'm going to use a word shit like that because it is it is it is most definitely um, in that category for me. It'll be like I said, it'll be interesting to see if it does find an audience or if it's just a little bit too niche on the nose. And um, I don't I don't want to say that it sort of cancels any uh, you know any involvement out from you know international audiences, but it'll just be interesting to see whether the consensus is similar. Me and Rora. Or if it will be like you said with Carol and Diego, it'd be interesting to see if that's on a, on a larger mass. We'll, we'll just have to probably wait to find out. But I, I don't think Ian Uchi will be losing sleep if this doesn't perform in the US. I think it's most definitely found a home. Perhaps it's just more of a, a bonus if it does find a find a larger audience. I mean, compared to Bill and Ted and even the New Mutants, like at least here in the US, it hasn't been getting as much buzz. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this was pretty much aimed to the UK rather than the US. Cause it really, like it's been present in conversations, but Bill and Ted and New Mutants have been getting way more attention. They do, they do also have decades worth of anticipation. Um, not so, even though the New Mutants has felt like decades, Bill and Ted's had 29 years. I mean, I don't think anyone is, is, is gonna throw their money out and, and, and flock to the cinema to watch David Copperfield um, even with the uh, almighty great Dev Patel in the titular role due to coronavirus. But even, even that being said, I, I still think that hopefully it has a set of legs and Ianucci can get some sort of um, thing back from, from the Academy Awards if and when that's actually going to be a thing again. Because as, as Rory sort of alluded to earlier, not alluded to, he's quite on the nose about it, <laughs> um, is that I think his production design is generally outstanding. I think his costume design is also outstanding. I think cinematography is, is spectacular. I think his performances here are also outstanding, although that will be a difficult task of, uh, of separating, supporting, uh, and stuff like that. And I, I don't think it, I don't think the BFI behind this uh, whoever production company distribution will have enough money to sort of push it towards that um, inclination of um, Academy Award recognition. But it is a film that I think has been lost this year due to coronavirus. And it is just sort of a, a damn shame that it, that it has been because there's so much to like here. It's not a film that can live on the streaming services either. I think it's way too niche. Although Mubi will definitely be something I could see, see it being gravitated towards. Maybe HBO Max, maybe the Criterion Channel, who knows, whatever happens to it. But it is a film that I think in, in a few years' time we'll probably look back on and it'll get sort of this 
hopeful second wind. And as, as, as Roy said earlier about, you know, Westerns dying off and, you know, every, every so often we see the, the, the amazing Craig Azala go back and make something subverted within that genre and it gets this recognition. And, you know, every so often we do find that people go back into these genres and try to revitalize it. We're going to see it um, if and when with uh, Spielberg's West Side Story, if it does have um, whoever it does in its star cast, um, if if he doesn't get replaced, who knows? But with this, I hope it does in a few years get that recognition. If it doesn't get it now, but but time time is on its side, no doubt. I think um, it's interesting thinking about the Academy Awards with this one. I agree with Jack completely that production design and costume design should be shoo-ins for awards and arguably cinematography. The sad thing is, is the scale of this film. I don't think is major enough, as we've discussed several times on this podcast. The Academy Awards can be an example of quality, but they can also be an example of just popularity and well-played marketing campaigns. I mean, need we forget that Bohemian Rhapsody won Best Editing, and that's a that's a real shame, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, I mean, I I would really love to see this get nominated, and I think the performances, especially, I think you've got two shoe-ins for Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress in Tilda Swinton and Hugh Laurie, but unfortunately, I just can't see this happening it's a, it's a similar situation i have with ben mendelson and baby teeth which we talked about a few weeks ago i think the scale of the film has a real impact on whether or not it'll get nominated and while this is by no means a small scale film it does have that against it it's inherently british it's got all caught up in this coronavirus release window which is a shame for most of the films we've talked about on this podcast actually and I think it's a real shame that it was probably going to get left behind from the Academy Awards. But I, I agree with this reappraisal. I think one thing that people underestimate is this is a film adaptation of one of the books of one of the most influential writers, arguably of all time, certainly in England. And this is a film that people are going to see. I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but maybe for generations to come. I'm talking, I'm talking films in English class, you know? This is... I think Armando Nietzsche can be very proud of himself that he's made a film for the future here. And this is something that is very special. This, in my eyes, is the definitive film adaptation of David Copperfield, which is a more, a more um, kind of flooded market of films than you would probably imagine. Uh, I'm sure the BBC have done it about 40 times, you know, throughout the years. But that's maybe, a, that's maybe an over-exaggeration, but there's been a few. I think you can't underestimate how many people, how many young people will either be forced into or to avoid reading the book, watch this and come to enjoy it. And I think that's something really special and worth mentioning that even if it doesn't get praise at the moment it comes out, it does hopefully have legs, at least here in jolly old England though. To round out Clapper Class, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. I've already implied mine this week and it's very rarely I do this because usually I have to do every new release and it's boring and um, a lot of people can get to see it because uh, most of it's um, independent work. However, I do have to recommend this week Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Generally outstanding, like the comedy level in it is, is, is no holds barred. I don't think the film gives a shit about what it wants to say or what it, how it wants to do it. You get robots, you get death, you get hell. They play Twister at one point. I mean, there's nothing not to like in that film whatsoever. I think it's generally a really interesting sequel, both both in merit and also context of how it sees the development of those two characters from the late eighties to the to the nineties. And when I was when I was younger, when I used to watch both of them, it always felt like a sort of jarring sequel because I think even their costume design changes, their hair changes, 
they look very uh, they look a lot older than they did three years ago, which is also quite interesting. But it's also interesting to see the sort of the career paths and, and how they take them, the, 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 the two characters. And I know it gets a lot of shit for just being ridiculous and slightly redundant, but I think it, it's a film that definitely deserves a reappraisal during the sort of this franchise world we live in now. I, I don't think you could do Bill and Ted Bogus Journey um, now, uh, and I think that's why it's definitely a recommendation. Hopefully it gets a 4K Blu-ray release or just a 4K restoration in the future like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure has done in the last few weeks. It definitely needs some love on its name. So that's definitely my recommendation this week. But uh, Rory, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go all in on the Armando content this week. Uh, I'd like to recommend The Thick of It, which is a TV show he did for the BBC, maybe in the early 2000s, I think. And it's essentially... We talked about Boys State a few weeks ago and how that's terrifying uh, for the future of American politics. But the thick of it is just a very, once again, relatively light, uh, goofy comedy about inept politicians doing stupid things. Uh, Peter Capaldi plays like this kind of enforcer for the prime minister who goes in and roughs up all the uh, politicians when they when they mess up, which is almost once or twice an episode and it's just a very very funny political sitcom that it's a pretty breezy kind of two or three seasons 20 episode 20 minutes per episode and if you like the kind of comedy that you see in other Ianucci projects then you'll definitely mesh with this one. Kyle your recommendations for this week? A movie I saw a couple weeks ago on Netflix that I knew nothing about and I was so, so pleasantly surprised was a South Korean film called Burning from 2018, I believe. I don't want to say much about it. I don't even know if I want to say the genre because I really think it's best if you just go in completely blind. But it stars uh, Steven Yun of The Walking Dead fame and it is an incredible, incredible film that... I guess I can say it, it blends several different genres, mystery, thriller, drama together into one very, very unique experience. And Diego, to finish us off. So this week as part of the Fantasia Film Festival, I was able to watch Sanzaru, which is an inc- probably my favorite film of the festival so far that I've seen. It could best be described as a cross between Uncle Boon Me and Hereditary. And it's just, it's something, it's very experimental, but kind of has some mainstream vibes to it at the same time. So I really do feel that for those who like this type of genre film, they're going to love it. It's screening, I believe, on the September 1st, actually, in two days as part of the Fantasia Film Festival. So if you, this sounds interesting, I definitely recommend you catch it there. And I was able to interview the director a couple days ago. So that's going to be out on the site as well soon and on here as well. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Diego? You can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at the Diego Andalus, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z. And I review all my movies there. I retweet all my work, and I just make comments about what I think of daily life in the film industry. Kyle, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Kyle Craigbaum. That's K-R-I-E. G-H-B-A-U-M And Rora? You can find me on Letterboxd at Rosa227 
And you can find me on both Twitter and Letterboxd with the username at Jack Luke Sharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and on Twitter with the username at ClapperLTD, as well as Letterboxd. And make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We're back next week to discuss all things cinema.